Let's jump into the Word of God. We are going to be talking about the tabernacle once again. But you know, uh, I want to start this message by by talking about by by, by talking about uh, my wedding day. I remember my wedding day pretty vividly, but I guarantee you that the things I remember about my wedding day are not the same things that my wife remembers about our wedding day. You know, my wife, she put countless hours into planning every single detail, every minute of our wedding day. Ladies, anybody else do this to their wedding? She picked out the color scheme of our wedding. She picked out the flowers. She picked out uh, the invitations and what they would look like. And you know what? Uh, to be honest with you, uh, you know, I, I think every woman uh, at some point, there's a lot of women out there that, that think about their wedding a little bit, maybe a lot before they even meet the man they're going to marry. But I just got to be really honest with you. On my wedding day, I was standing up there and I could care less about the color of the dresses that the bridesmaids were wearing. I could care less about what we were having for dinner at the reception or what the flowers looked like. Guys, you know where I'm going with this. You know what I was thinking about when I was standing up there on the altar on my wedding day? Come on, my mind was already on its way to the honeymoon. I know, I know some of you guys can relate with me. And, and, and I was not just thinking about our wedding night. I didn't want to just get my wife to the, to the wedding night. I was looking forward to spending life with her. I was looking forward to getting her away from the crowd and to getting her all to myself so that I could begin to live life with her. That we would move in together and we begin to just figure each other out and we would begin to do life together. I was looking forward to having my wife alone. And I wonder sometimes if this is how God feels. You know, we are like young brides who sometimes plan out our lives and we plan out, uh, you know, when we say yes to Jesus, we have an expectation of what our life is going to look like from this point on. So we have, we have plans and we have things that we want to accomplish. And, and we're like these young brides who, who have an idea of what we want to experience when we come to church or, or, or when we have a relationship with Jesus. But you know what? Jesus didn't die so that he can enjoy ceremonies and traditions with you. Jesus wants to get you all to himself. And this is what the holy place is all about. We've been talking about the tabernacle for the past few weeks and how the tabernacle, the the earthly tabernacle that we see in the Old Testament is a shadow or a copy of the heavenly tabernacle that we see in Hebrews chapter 8. And so we know that all the elements that we see in the tabernacle, we talked about the altar of sacrifice the first week. We talked about the wash basin, which represents the washing of the word of God. We talked about the table of showbread. And and all of these elements are vital. uh, They're they're, they're in integral to our worship to God today because they reflect a reality in heaven that is happening right now. So I want to, if, if you haven't been joining us, let's put a picture of the tabernacle up here. I want to show you a picture of this tabernacle. You have the gates that you walk in on the far right and everything is sequential. Notice this, that there's one after the other. You, you go to the altar of sacrifice, you get to the bronze basin, but then as you step into the holy place, it's no longer sequential. You have the table of showbread to your immediate right, and you have the golden lampstand on your left. And, and the reason is, is because these two items, these two elements of the tabernacle actually serve hand in hand with one another. That's why they're not sequential, but we get to this place where the table of showbread and the golden lampstand, these two ministries, serve hand in hand. 
The golden lampstand represents the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be talking about this today. Well, if you're new to the faith, or maybe you're new to church, who is the Holy Spirit? I want to answer this question for you. The Holy Spirit is part of the triune God that we worship. We believe that there is God the Father, the creator of all things, who was there at the beginning of time. But we also believe that he was joined at the beginning of all time by the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Son being Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, came and lived among us for 30-something years, died on the cross and was resurrected. And then after he ascended to heaven, he sent a helper, or he sent the Holy Spirit and power to, to equip the saints to do the work of God, to do the work of ministry. But you know, that isn't the first time that we see the Holy Spirit in the Bible. In fact, we see all three of the persons of God, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we see them at the very beginning of creation, the very beginning of time. Genesis one twenty six. God said, let us make man in our image. And he's referring to this divine family, this divine relationship that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have together who are united in perfect unity, in mission, in purpose, in association, in everything that they believe. They, they unite with one another. But we also see that the Holy Spirit in Genesis, in, in the very first verse, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God, that word means breath, or it means means inspiration, but it's also this picture in the Hebrew of a bird flapping his feathers. It's this picture of a bird waving his feathers like a mother would would flap in her nest and and, and comfort. And, And so it's this picture of this bird flapping at the very beginning of creation. And what happens when Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist? The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, right? In the form of a bird and rests upon Jesus and the heavens open and, 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 and there is a voice from heaven that says, this is my son and whom I'm well pre- pleased. We see even there at Jesus' baptism, all three people, the father who's speaking from heaven, this is my son whom I'm well pleased and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And so we believe in one God, we serve one God, but he has three distinct persons about him that we see throughout the Bible and it's undeniable. You have to, when you read scripture, you cannot deny that we serve a God who has three distinct persons about him. Jesus told his followers to wait in the upper room after he ascended to heaven. He said to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so, In Acts chapter 2, 120 people are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he goes out and begins preaching the gospel in boldness. And he tells the people listening that that what what they're witnessing, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel's word. And Joel prophesied this in chapter 2 of the book of Joel. And Peter quotes it in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out. Now, both men and women, this, that's a big deal for the first century. Come on, women, women did not have a place in the first century. They weren't even mentioned a lot of the times in writings. They weren't acknowledged. But, but here we have a prophet who, who is saying, and Peter confirming this, that the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on all people men and women, servants, and and, and the free. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. You see, the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of God's promise to dwell 
within every believer. The Bible says that you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the presence of God living inside of you. Before it was a tabernacle and the presence of God rested in the Ark of the Covenant that was in the holiest of holies. But after Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn and now you have access to the presence of God and you became the temple of the Holy Spirit and God's presence lives inside of you. It is the fulfillment of God's promise to be with every believer. And the Holy Spirit is our comforter He's our helper and he provides us with the power to complete the great commission of Jesus to make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about how the Holy Spirit can be seen in the golden lampstand. I'm not going to read the description of the golden lampstand. It's found in Exodus chapter 25. Verses 31 through 40, it's, it's the construction of the golden lampstand. But I'm going to summarize it for you for time's sake. So the lampstand, the golden lampstand, was hammered out of solid gold. It had six branches. There's a picture, I think, of it up here. There we go. There it is. It had six branches that came off of the main shaft, each topped with a lamp. So there were seven lamps total. The branches of the lampstand were each made up of nine parts. Now, all of these numbers and all of these things are very significant, and we're going to talk about these things in a moment. The branches were made up of nine parts. There were three buds, three flowers, and three fruits. The wick and the flame were tended by the priest, who was also in charge of making sure that the lamps were always full of pure, pressed olive oil. This wasn't a candlestick. It was a lampstand full of oil and a wick, and the priests were in charge of tending to the wick and making sure that it was full of oil. It was basically a hundred-pound menorah with seven lamps. This was a big lampstand. So allow me, can I get a little nerdy with you for a second? Can we go into detail about these different elements and allow me to, to get a little bit nerdy as we talk about what each of these things mean uh, this, this golden lampstand has, has a lot of little details to it. And each detail is so, everything in the tabernacle is so important, so detailed, and so on purpose. And, you know, I remember being in Sunday school when I was a kid, and 90% of the time, if the teacher asked me uh, what the answer was to a question, 90% of the time the answer was Jesus. So you could say Jesus, and you were probably right. So this morning, if I ask you, what does the golden lampstand represent? If you said Jesus, you would be right. Because the the golden lampstand, yes, it represents the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus can be seen in every element of the tabernacle. We know that Jesus is seen in the gates. Psalms 100 says, enter into the gates of thanksgiving and the courts of praise. Jesus is seen in the gates because Jesus said that he is the way. He's seen in the altar because the Bible says that he is the Lamb of God that was slain for the world. He's seen in the, in the bronze wash basin because he is the word of God and the water of life. Jesus can be seen in the table because he's the bread of life. And he's seen in the golden lampstand because the Bible says in John 8, 12, that Jesus is the light of the world. John 8, 12 says, Jesus said this, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. So this golden lampstand, yes, it represents Jesus, but it, it's so much more than that. This golden lampstand had details on it that represented the blossoms, the blossoms of an almond tree. Why an almond tree? Why not, why not anything else? Well, an almond tree is significant because the Hebrew word for almond is shakad, which means awakening. 
And the almond tree is the first tree to awake from the sleep of winter. It's the first tree to blossom after winter. And it represents first fruits or new life. That's what the almond tree represents. It's significant. The lamp also had pure pressed olive oil. And oil in the Bible always represents the Holy Spirit. The oil in the tabernacle was to be pure and pressed from olives. And this is significant because the Bible says in Isaiah that Jesus was the olive of God. He was pressed and he was crushed. And the Holy Spirit was sent to us as a result of Jesus on the cross who was pressed or crushed for us according to Isaiah 53. It says that he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sin. He was beaten so we could be made whole. And he was whipped so that we could be made healed. And I think that this is important. You know, oftentimes when you had something that was this intricate and this large, uh, what they would do is they would create a mold, a wooden mold, or they, they would make a mold and they would pour gold into the mold in order to keep all the intricate details. But God specifically instructed that they did not make this lampstand by molding it. He wanted a, a, a superior craftsman to come and hammer it out of solid gold. It's significant that this golden lampstand was hammered instead of molded because Jesus first had to be crushed or beaten in order for the Holy Spirit to come. And if you notice, everything else in the tabernacle that we talked about, the, the altar was made of acacia wood and it was overlaid with bronze. And the acacia wood represents humanity, incorruptible, immortal humanity, which, which is a symbol for Jesus' humanity, that he was human, but he was without sin. He was immortal. And he, acacia wood does not rot. It does not decay. Uh, does not, yeah, I said that right. It does not decay. And then the wash basin was made of bronze. And then you see the table of showbread also has acacia wood, but the golden lampstand is pure gold. And the meaning behind that is that the table of showbread represents the humanity and divinity of Jesus, whereas the golden lampstand is all God, no man. It's the, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We see the number nine in the construction of the lampstand, that, that each branch of the lampstand had nine segments. And the number nine gives us another clue that this represents the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Numbers are significant in the Bible. I'm going to get past all this nerdy stuff in just a minute. Just stay with me. But the, the, the numbers are significant in the Bible. And nine always represents the ministry of the Holy Spirit. For instance, how many fruits of the Spirit are there? In Galatians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, let's count them. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How many are there? There's nine. If you still don't believe me, let's read how many gifts of the Spirit are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Paul writes this, Now to each one of the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between the spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. How many are there? There's nine. And to be honest, I'm not convinced that these are the only gifts of the spirit. I believe that the Bible talks about more. But I think that it's significant that Paul mentions nine gifts of the spirit in this passage. 
Another element about the lampstand that is significant is the fact that it has fire. A lampstand gives out fire. It gives out heat and light. Fire is another biblical symbol of the Holy Spirit. When the Israelites moved through the desert and they took the tabernacle with them, they would establish the tabernacle in a location and they would put an offering on the, sac- on, the, on the altar and God's presence would come down in a pillar of fire and consume the offering. And then we see, <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to get some water. We see in Acts chapter 2 that there's 120 people waiting in an upper room. And when the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes them, what appears over each of their heads? Tongues of fire. So, the, the, the Holy Spirit can be seen in this, in this fire in the fact that, that the Holy Spirit illuminates things in our life, just like fire lights up a room and it, it illuminates things in our life, but it also burns a passion inside of us, just like the Holy Spirit burns a passion, a new life inside of every single one of us. <clears throat> and the last thing I want to talk about is the fact that the number seven can be seen there's seven lamps on the golden lampstand <clears throat> and the number seven in the bible it represents fullness or completion or abundance and rest <clears throat> and in genesis we see that god rested on the seventh day and he enjoyed his complete creation and because of the holy spirit we now have access to the fullness of god and can enjoy the abundance of a life filled with the presence of god the holy spirit provides the thing that we needed in order to be mature, to be made complete in the Lord. So as I mentioned earlier, the table of showbread and the golden lampstand, they were on either side of the, of the holy places you walked in. So I want to answer this question. Why, why did the ministries of the table, you know, this confused me at first, that, that the ministries of the table of showbread, which we talked about last week, represents intimacy with the Lord, communion. It's an Old Testament foreshadowing of, of the act of communion that we do today. But why does the table, that intimacy with the Lord, why does it go hand in hand with the ministry of the Holy Spirit? You know, many people, when they're working for God, when they're moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, when they're, when they're telling people about Jesus, or when they're praying for the sick, or when they're doing the things of the Lord, they often see this as an all or nothing type of thing, that you're either full or you're empty. So you come into the presence of God and you get filled up, right? When you're in intimacy with God, this is how we tend to picture it. You get filled up with the presence of God and then as you go out in the work of the Holy Spirit and, and the ministry, you, you empty that, those reserves. And so you get filled up and then you empty out and you get filled up. And you're either full or you're empty. And I don't think this is the way to look at it. You know, this, when you describe it like that, it's almost like you're describing a NASCAR event where you're either burning it up on the asphalt, you're racing in the ministry and the power of God and you're doing things for the Lord and you're praying for the sick and you're telling people how much Jesus loves them and then you get empty and you have to make a pit stop. And you're at the pit stop and your tank's getting full and your tires are being changed and your, your car's getting fixed and then you, boom, you go back out and you're full, Right? And you don't stop until you cross the finish line when you die. And that's how we picture ministry or working for the Lord. But I think that this is a wrong way to picture because what we see in the table of intimacy, this table of showbread and the ministry of, uh, of, of the golden lampstand, the Holy Spirit, is that intimacy and power, they go hand in hand. One fuels the other. 
let me give you a better way to look at this. Instead of seeing it as a NASCAR event where you're either stopped or you're going full blast, imagine that you are on the lap of your father and you're on the front porch and you're, you're sitting in your father's lap on the front porch on a rocking chair and you're laughing with each other. You're sharing life with one another. You're constantly conversing. You're constantly in conversation with one another. And you're, you're being, you're, you're understanding the heart of God and you're, 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 you're having this intimacy with the Lord and the Lord bends down and whispers in your ear, hey, you see that demon in the front yard? Go get rid of that demon. Go shoo it out of the yard and then come back and tell me about it. So you hop off the lap of your father and you go and you shoo the demon out of the front yard and you come back to your father and you begin to give him a play-by-play of exactly what happened and you're laughing about it and he's taking so much pride in you because you were obedient and you stepped out in faith and you did what, what, what he asked you to do and, and you're having that intimacy once again and then he sees a boy fall off his bike and he says, hey, go run over there. See that poor kid who fell off his bike? Go, go bandage his knee. Go pray for him. Go heal that boy and then come back to my lap and tell me all about it. And notice all the while, you haven't left the father's sight. You're within earshot of the father the entire time. He sees what you're doing. You can see the father and, and he, he, he knows what's happening. He, he's witnessing you doing it. You haven't left his presence, right? You haven't left the intimacy. You're, you're still there. You're still in his proximity. But you go out and you help the boy and you come back and you begin to tell the father about all that you've done. And every time you return to the lap of the father, you notice that, that the work of ministry is actually giving you an understanding of what the father loves and what he hates. That the work of ministry, that the power exercising the power of the Holy Spirit and stepping out in faith, stepping out in the power of the Holy Spirit is actually fueling a deeper understanding of God. And it's bringing you closer. It's tightening, it's strengthening your bonds together because you are being obedient to him. He's taking pride in you. You're sharing in this. And then, and that intimacy again fuels you to go back out. And so these ministries work hand in hand because The table is the intimate relationship with God that fuels the work of ministry. And the work of ministry fuels deeper understanding and stronger bonds with your relationship with God. Here's the lesson. is that intimacy bears fruit. Intimacy bears power. It produces power. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? My wife and I, we have four kids. And I can tell you, with absolute certainty that every one of those kids is a result of the intimate relationship I have with my wife. It's natural law. You can't have offspring or fruit without communion, without intimacy. It's a natural law. Let me ask you this question. Are you having a hard time being loving? Are you having a hard time extending kindness to somebody or exhibiting patience or self-control i would say that it's because there's a lack of intimacy that you have not been in the presence of god return to the presence of god come back to the presence of god and you will bear fruit again and jesus says this in john 15 verse 4 through 5 he says this this makes so much sense now viewing it through this lens he says remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, 
You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying, listen, if you want the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you want the fruits of the Spirit exhibited in your lifestyle, if you want to operate in the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit, you have to make Jesus, the intimacy that you have with Jesus, your main priority. And without intimacy, you will not bear fruit. So Jesus says, remain in me. Stay with me. Stay in an intimate relationship with me and let that fuel the work of ministry. Let that fuel what you do for God and the, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, he modeled this so well. We've been talking about how Jesus was the ultimate worship leader. That, that he, he, he modeled tabernacle worship perfectly in the last week of his life leading up to his death and he he came in on a donkey through the gates of jerusalem just like you would come into the gates of the tabernacle with praise and thanksgiving and he came in on a donkey and he ended his triumphal entry in the courts next to the altar of sacrifice where he brought himself as a sacrifice and then we can see him modeling the wash basin as he's washing his disciples feet and cleansing them of the soil of the world from their feet And then he has communion with them. He shares intimacy with them, breaks bread with them. So where does Jesus model the golden lampstand or the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, see, after Jesus shared communion with his disciples, him and his followers, they sang songs of praise together. And then Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to pray to a garden called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane is a Greek word that means oil press. And it was here that Jesus, the olive of God, was being pressed and crushed and began that process of squeezing and the oil or the Holy Spirit was released to the world when the pressing process was completed. The Bible says that Jesus was being crushed and he was being pressed so much that he began to sweat blood as he was in the garden. And this Mount of Olives And it was in this moment alone, praying in the garden, that Jesus was experiencing so much intimacy with the Father that he was dripping with power. You know, some people think that Jesus was just like, he was dragged to the cross, that he didn't want to go, that that he was was a victim, that he was forced to be crucified. And, And you know what? That is so beyond the truth. Jesus was a willing participant in this entire thing. At any moment, he could have said, okay, we're done. I'm going, to change up the, I'm going to change up the plan. I'm going to do what I want to do. But Jesus was a willing participant as he was being led to the cross. Let me show you. In John uh, chapter 18, verses 4 through 7. This is powerful. I never caught this before. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him. This is when the guards came to arrest Jesus. He's in the garden praying. Jesus says, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, I mean, they're confused at this point. They've just been taken back by the power of God. And so they get up and Jesus is like, who is it that you said you wanted? Jesus of Nazareth? See, the guards, they were looking for Jesus. And and Jesus says, "Who, who is it that you're looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. He used the same title for himself that God used of himself when he spoke to Moses in the burning bush. That I am. 
the name of God. And when they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am he and the power of God fell upon these men. They fell to the ground. See, Jesus had been in so much intimacy with the Lord that the power of God was dripping from him. And you know what? That same Holy Spirit that was released from Jesus in that moment, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, church, this is what the devil doesn't want us to get. It's the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. There is no junior varsity version. There is no baby step Holy Spirit. Well, let's just give them a sliver of the Holy Spirit until they kind of learn how to drive, and then we'll give them the real deal. No, no, no. The moment you got saved, you were given the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that lived inside of Jesus. You are filled with the power of God. And the devil is terrified that if the church understood this, they would be taking ground. We live so much of our lives on defense. And we, we unco- maybe we subconsciously do this or not, but we, we live our lives in a way that's like, I'm going to brace for another attack of the enemy. The devil's coming after me, so I'm going to get the armor of God on and get ready to get beaten or battered by the enemy. But you know what? You are on the offense, church. God has given you the ball. You don't have to be afraid of the enemy. In fact, the the armor of God is all about offensive moves. It's about taking ground. It's about moving forward. And we live our lives in fear of what the enemy is trying to do. And we give him so much credit. The sound system's not working. Oh, the devil's doing it. My car broke down. Oh, that devil's after me again. We give him way too much credit, church. The devil is weak. He's weak. He's real. And he wants to devour you. He is seeking your life. But the devil is weak. All he has is deception and lies. And if the church began to step into the reality that they have authority in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, they would begin to take ground for the kingdom of God. So you might be sitting here this morning thinking, you know, pastor, I like what you're saying. I love reading the book of Acts, but that has not been my experience. When I read the book of Acts, it seems like a fairy tale. It seems like a far-off land, and it doesn't seem like those gifts are for us today. It doesn't seem like that is for us today. Pastor, I like what you're saying, but I don't know how to get there. I don't know what that looks like in my life. Well, this morning I want to talk about three predominant Holy Spirit encounters that every believer should be having in their relationship with God. These are three Holy Spirit encounters that every believer should be experiencing in their life. And the first one is this, that if you are born, uh, the number one thing is that you are born of the Spirit at the moment of salvation. You are born of the Spirit. That's the first encounter. The moment you got saved, the moment you said yes to Jesus, there was a part of you, when you were born into this world, you were born with this tendency towards sin and a tendency towards rebellion and the things that are not of God. And when you got saved, that part of you was crucified. It died on the cross. And that's what baptism represents. As you go into the water, you were being crucified with Christ. And as you come out of the water, it's the new life. It's the new you. It's the new creation. When you are born of the Spirit, when you say yes to Jesus, you are given a new nature. You no longer desire the things of the world. You desire the things of God. And we say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, not anymore. If you said yes to Jesus, you're not a sinner anymore. You are a saint. 
That's why Paul writes to the saints and the churches in the New Testament. You are a saint saved by grace. John chapter 3 verse 5 through 7. Jesus said this, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You are born of the Spirit. You are given a new nature at the moment of salvation when you say yes to Jesus. That's the first encounter that every person should have with the Holy Spirit. The second encounter that we have with the Holy Spirit, and this is very biblical, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit after salvation as an endowment of power from the Holy Spirit. You're given the power of the Holy Spirit when you're baptized in the Spirit. Uh, And this is when the believer receives the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I, so much greater than I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Acts chapter 8, verse 14 through 17. It says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. And as soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Get this. Peter and John go to visit a church of people. These, this is a group of believers who, had, who have accepted Jesus. They, they are believers. They are followers of Jesus. They've been born of the Spirit already, but they have not yet received the Holy Spirit because they've only been baptized in the name of Jesus. And so what happens? Peter and John go and visit and they lay their hands upon these believers and they receive the Holy Spirit. In the first church, when, when people want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's through the laying on of hands. It's when a believer who has been baptized in the Holy Spirit and is full of the Holy Spirit lays hands on another believer and they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the third experience that we have. So you're born of the Spirit. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit. The third experience that we are to have is you are continually filled by the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we see that there's this initial baptism of the Holy Spirit with 120 people in an upper room. They're filled. This is the initial baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's the first time that humanity has been filled with the presence of God. So they, they, it's God who lays hands on them, Right? It's the tongues of fire. God comes and he lays hands spiritually on these 120 people and they're all baptized in the Holy Spirit. But two chapters later, in Acts chapter 4, 31, we see some of the same people who were baptized two chapters earlier. They get filled with the Spirit again. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it says, After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they preached the word of God with boldness. See, the Holy Spirit comes to fill you for an assignment or for something that God is, He wants to fill you with His Holy Spirit to, to accomplish something that He wants you to do. And, and, and church, I can be honest, I, I feel this at times when I, when I get up here to speak. Oftentimes I'm insecure throughout the week and I'm preparing for the message and I'm, <clears throat> I'm thinking, God, I don't know how this is going to resonate with the church and I don't know if this is going to go over well and I feel insecure, I feel anxious and then I feel the Spirit of God fill me up to accomplish the work and just to deliver what he's asking me to deliver. 
The Spirit of God wants to fill you up. <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. This is New Living Translation. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a, there's, you are born of the Spirit at the moment of salvation. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit after salvation. And the presence of God, God continually fills us with his spirit. So, Pastor Blake, how do I receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Because I, I look back on my life, I can't, I can't remember any situation or any moment where I can say I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Maybe that has been the experience for some of you. Well, first of all, you have to be saved. That's the first step to receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is the process of the tabernacle. We see that as the priests entered the holy place, before they could even get to the holy place, what did they have to do? They had to stop at the altar. And they had to offer their lives as living sacrifices. Romans 12.1 says, Now we offer our lives as living sacrifices. And so the first thing that we do is we give our lives, our submission to Jesus. We submit to God. You have to be saved, first of all. But... Our worship doesn't stop there. God has so much more for us. A lot of times we see believers, this is where they stop. I gave my life to Jesus. I got my golden ticket to heaven and now I'm, I'm good to go, right? There's nothing else in life I have to do. I'm done. You're missing out on so much that God has for you. So much blessing, so much power that God has for your life. And hear me, the power that he gives you is not for your glory or your benefit. It's for the benefit of his glory. It's to give fame to Jesus. It's to point people to Jesus and to let him know that he is the one with the authority. He is the one with the power. Let's not over-emotionalize this, but let's say that God wants to fill you with power and authority so that you can point people to Jesus. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was in middle school at my church in Squim, Washington, and I don't even remember who laid hands on me. I just remember being in the back of the back of the church in the very back row. I was behind the back row. And somebody came up to me and just laid their hands on me and I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I, I knew it because I started speaking in tongues. And, and I want to make this clear in our church that that I that we believe that tongues the gift of tongues is a gift of the holy spirit but we do not believe that is the evidence of the holy spirit so in other words you don't have to speak in tongues to prove that you to to as the evidence that you've been baptized in the holy spirit sometimes that is people's encounters that when they're baptized in the holy spirit they received a gift they receive a gift of the spirit that they begin just operating in immediately that was my experience. I began to speak in tongues in this moment. And this is a whole nother sermon for a whole nother time talking about the gifts of the Spirit and what tongues are. It's a spiritual language that we have with God to just be really short about it. But, uh, but that was my experience. It's not everybody's experience. But I had another experience with the Holy Spirit when I was 18 years old. And I've shared this story before. It was a radical experience. And I had gotten to the point in my life where... Uh, I, I was reading the Bible, I'd read the book of Acts, and I'd say, this is not my reality. This is not what I'm living. And, and if, this is, if this is the reality that I'm supposed to be living in, then I want it. I want more of it. God, 
I want your power in my life. I want your presence in, in my life. I want to walk with the Holy Spirit in my life. And so I went into my bedroom and I just said, God, I'm going to give you this time. And I'm not going to leave my room until I have an encounter with your love, an encounter with your Holy Spirit. And I, I went into my bedroom and I played the song, How He Loves Us. And I began to worship in there and I felt the presence of God come and fall. It felt like a blanket fell on my back. And, and I felt the Spirit of God fill that room and fill me up. And, and it was so thick in that place that I thought to myself, if somebody else were to walk in this room right now, they would be able to feel this, right? Like, this isn't just me. It's not just my emotions taking control of the situation. And so I unlocked the door to my room, waiting for maybe somebody to wander into my room. And about 10 minutes later, my little brother came into my room to play the Xbox because that's where I kept it, in my bedroom. And, and he was with his friend, who is now my brother-in-law. He ended up marrying my sister, that rascal. <laughs> and I love you, Kai, if you're watching online. Love you, man. I'm glad you're part of the family. But the two of them, they didn't know I was worshiping in my room. They didn't know what was happening. And they were coming in to play the Xbox, and my brother opens up the door to my bedroom. And as soon as he steps through the threshold, he begins sobbing uncontrollably. He just begins weeping. And I hear him crying, and I'm, I got my back towards him, and I turn around, and I see my brother just standing there weeping because he's been hit with this presence of God. And I said, Brian, do you feel this right now? He says, what is happening in here? What's going on? I said, this is the presence of God. Brian, come in here and worship with me. And the two of them, they, they came, and they knelt beside me for about 10 minutes. And we began just to worship the Lord for the next 10 minutes. And I was filled with the Spirit again that day. And let me tell you, church, that God gave me a key. And I, this key is for you. That, in that on that day, God gave me a key. And he said, Blake, the access to my, my presence, my spirit, access to it is yours. Here's the key to this room. You can come in anytime that you want. You don't have to wait for a big prophet to come to town. You don't have to wait to go to a conference. You don't have to wait for this, you know, sky parting moment for you to have this deep relationship this intimacy with me where i fill you with my holy spirit and you experience the more that i have for your life you don't have to wait for it here's the key come in whenever you want and on that day i realized that there is more to my faith than just coming to church and reading the bible and the preacher telling me what's wrong and what's right, and these are the things I should do and shouldn't be doing, and you're going to hell for this because you did this, or whatever it is, I realized on that day that there is more for my life, that the Holy Spirit wants to fill us with power. Church, do you believe that there is such a thing as a dead church? Do you believe that there's such a thing as a sleeping Christian? Because the Bible talks about it. I wonder how many Christians think they're doing just fine without the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm good. I come to church on Sunday. You know, I read these great, the pastor makes me feel warm and fuzzy. And I go home. I pat myself on the back thinking what a great Christian I am because I went to church today. And I gave some money to this person. I gave a sandwich to this guy on the street. And I did this, you know. The Holy Spirit wants to wake up his church. He wants to, to wake up the church. Wake up the sleeping Christians. Listen to these sobering words from Jesus. In, Re- in Revelation, he's, he's speaking to one of the seven churches in Revelation. And again, think of intimacy and power going hand in hand. Revelations 2, verse 4 through 5. I'm going to ask Mary to come up as we close. 
He says this, Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. He says, you've forsaken the intimacy with me. That love that you had with me, you've abandoned it. And this is what he says. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your what? Your lampstand from its place. I don't want to be a sleeping Christian. I don't want to be a dead church. I don't want to be a whitewashed tomb where on the outside we look like everything is fine. Church, we are imperfect people. But we don't act like it when we're in the world. People look at the church, they look at people in the church, and they condemn us because we're hypocrites. Because we talk about how wonderful Jesus is and how he can change their life, but then we lash out in hate. And this is what the world sees of the church. They see a dead church. A church that is void of the Holy Spirit's power. Now I don't want to, this isn't a sweeping blanket statement. I don't believe that every church is like this. I don't believe our church is like this. Because I sense a hunger here. And I sense a humility to say we're imperfect, but we want more, Jesus. We're going to continue with your power, with the Holy Spirit, And I want this for our church. I don't want to be a sleeping church. I don't want to be a dead church. Today, we're going to pray for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? I don't know how this is going to look, but I don't care. Because I cannot manipulate or control God's presence. I can't I can't get the Holy Spirit to do what I want him to. He's going to do what he wants to do. But what I can do is be obedient to what the word of God says. And the word of God says that if you want the Holy Spirit, if you ask for it, he promises he will pour it out on you. The word of God also says that you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. And so we're going to lay hands on one another. And before we do that, I I just want to, I want to close this time for those watching online and just tell everybody watching online, I'm so glad that you're joining us. And, and I, I, I want to be sensitive to the people in the room here because we're going to do some ministry time. So uh, we're, going to, we're going to say goodbye to those watching online and, and tell you I love you. Uh, hope that you join us next week. We'll see you later.